education is powerful. And one of the things that we've learned in the last uh, few days is the need for people to be educated. Uh, you know, last week, it's interesting uh, when you look at the story of Noah. Last week, we were at a perfect place uh, to talk about something that, that uh, was on uh, uh, the forefront of people's minds last week. And that was saber-rattling around the world. Remember, we talked about the covenant that God made with Noah to give us assurance that God's word will not be broken and to give us comfort uh, in that. Well, it's funny, a week goes by and we have a whole other, we have a whole other thing that uh, uh, is on the forefront of our minds and we don't live in a vacuum. And this week, you know, I was wrestling with, uh, you know, what to say or what do we address and wouldn't you know it, right there in the story of Noah, and right where we are, is the perfect text uh, for us to discuss. And why do we need to discuss this? Well, I want to read to you a, uh, a little testimony, a little uh, eyewitness account. It was Friday night, and a community of Jewish people gathered to pray and welcome the Sabbath. There had been Nazi calls to burn their synagogue. So, as a precaution, they had already removed the Holy Scriptures, moving their Torah scrolls to a safe location. Still, they came to pray. But when they arrived, they saw Nazis gathered across the street. Each of the Nazis was carrying a semi-automatic rifle. Swastika banners waved over the group of hateful young men as they shouted, Sigheil. With Nazis menacing those in the synagogue, the praying Jewish people had to sneak out the back door to avoid potential attacks by these anti-Semites. And when and where did this happen? This was not in 1938 Nazi Germany, but last week in Charlottesville, Virginia, right here in the United States. And so I, this is a great teachable moment uh, for us. Because, you know, there's a lot of people that, that, um, that we really appreciate that like to identify with us and you know, uh, be part of a Messianic Jewish congregation and celebrate Jewish holidays and, uh, you know, engage in the rich heritage, uh, you know, of the faith. Well, you know, when we uh, hear something like that and when we see Nazi flags and Nazis and, you know, white supremacists and all of that, uh, it's not just something on the news that we're reading about other people, like them. This is about us. This is about us. And it needs to bother us. It needs to really bother us, you see. Uh, and so it behooves us to, first of all, call it for what it all is, which is evil, unequivocally evil. This is not a political statement. This is just a moral statement. It's evil, right? And we are called to stand up against evil, all right? Very, very important. And I think that it also is helpful to us to understand, well, what, how do we, then, how do we frame this? What does the Scriptures have to say about all of this? Well, the Scripture has to say a lot of things about all of this, and and uh, we're not going to talk about everything related to this, but I think it's helpful for us to be reminded of some things that perhaps uh, we, may, uh, we may know 
but we need to be reminded of from the Word of God. Because all of us, we live in a culture, and we were all born and raised uh, in a culture of us and them based on uh, race and uh, economic status and the color of your skin. We were all raised that way. Uh, None of us just dropped in, you know? Uh, It doesn't matter if you uh, come from the West Coast, the East Coast, the North Coast, uh, or the South. Uh, All of us, uh, especially as Messiah followers, the Bible talks about renewing your mind. And part of renewing our mind, as we always like to talk about, is a different worldview. And so we need, of all people, we need to demonstrate what that means. Now, I am encouraged to say that I think we kind of do demonstrate that. (laughs) You know, uh, I think that we do uh, here. But we need to be reminded of uh, certain things, I think, from the Scriptures that will help us uh, in, uh, in checking ourselves, our own attitudes, and standing up to, uh, to evil. You know, I wasn't going to say this, but uh, I feel like saying it, so I'm going to say it. And that is, you know, when you're Jewish, now this might be an eye-opener, and my guess is some of us probably never even thought of this before, but it's very interesting. To a Nazi or a white supremacist, Jews are not white, okay? Jews are not white, okay? The only reason we're white is because of assimilating into uh, culture. Now, on the away on the other side, you have those who rally against the privileged white people. To those people, we are white, okay? So we need to understand this. It's actually a profound thought that takes a lot of unpacking, but I'm just going to, I'm throwing it in your face, right? So it's very important to understand that. It's part of that whole, you know, and say, well, when you're a Jew, is it a race? Is it about, we're asking the wrong question. It's, you know, that's not even the question. Because you see that uh, we're talking about a, uh, being a peculiar people that clearly do not fit into these uh, categories when we deeply think about it and as it plays out in our world. Because if there's one thing that has been true uh, for the last several thousand years when it comes to Jewish people, at some point, somewhere along the way, in every culture and in every place, you're welcomed till you're not. Uh, and I will say that uh, I know that these uh, rallies and so on do not represent the majority of people uh, in, in an- anywhere. <laughs> do not re- represent a majority of people in a, in a town. Do not represent a majority of people in a state. Do not represent a majority of people uh, certainly in the country. And so uh, some have said, well... <laughs> it's just a small little thing. Ignore it. (laughs) No, we don't ignore it because what happens after a while of these rallies, several of which are happening today, and who knows what we're going to hear later this afternoon, and that is it becomes a norm, right? It becomes, oh, it's just one of those gatherings. Well, what happens is it's it's, it's like a cancer, Uh, Or it's like an infectious disease. It spreads. And people don't even realize it after a while. See? 
And so very important that we just have like a reality check. Say, you know, I, you know, I have to make sure that I do not have any kind of even latent, uh, you know, not on the surface, uh, feelings of, uh, of uh, white nationalism or bigotry or uh, disparaging a, a, uh, a people group. Wow. Uh, because the Bible, as uh, we know, quite clearly speaks to this. And we know that uh, of many of the sins that we do and we confess, this is one that is like an underlying, festering thing, and that has been true for many years, and we certainly want to take the opportunity when something like this to check ourselves and to pray against evil in, uh, you know, in the world in which we live. So, that being said, let's turn to what we always thought was like a benign, interesting passage of Scripture, but which is very relevant to our lives, and that is in the ninth chapter of Genesis. Kind of in the middle of the chapter is where we left off. And it's amazing how relevant this ancient text is to us today. All right. We are in... Verse 18. Verse 18. Okay, last time we talked about that covenant that God made not to destroy the world again and so, so on and so forth. We talked all about that. Now, I, I, in, uh, in verse 18, we read, Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah and from these, the whole earth was populated. I could almost just stop there, you know, but there's more to say. So remember that in, uh, that in Genesis, uh, we have basically a genealogy with narratives interspersed in the genealogies to teach us about the people, the, the groups of people, the callings of the people, okay? So, here we see uh, uh, the genealogy, a little bit of the genealogy of, uh, of Noah. And right away, we see that Ham is the father of Canaan. So, something's up, because that's an odd thing to say, right? It doesn't say, uh, and uh, Shem was the father of Abraham, or Shem is the father of the Jewish people, or that Japheth is the father of uh, the Aegean people, uh, the Sea Peoples doesn't say that. It just says Ham was the father of Canaan. Now, very importantly, these three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Right there, it is imperative that we remember and we understand that all of humanity comes from a family. All of humanity comes from a family. And, and it is very interesting that family, I will suggest, is the paradigm or the model of everything about living out God's word. It is the model that is used. Adam and Eve is a family. We all come out of Adam and Eve. Cain and Abel, brothers. Uh, Noah and his sons, family. 
Uh, and we will see, and I'm going to point it out today, even if we don't get that far, that we read about the peoples of the earth uh, are viewed not as countries and not as races, but as families and what we, uh, a term that uh, people in the missions world like to use, people groups. Okay? All right. So the whole earth is populated from the sons of, uh, the sons of Noah. I, you know, and that is, again, uh, uh, for us to remember uh, and to realize that no matter who it is, no matter what the color of a person's skin is, no matter where they come from, even no matter their ideology, that all of us are related. God, in one sense, views humanity as family descended from Noah. Now, it's also interesting, you know, that we read that in the beginning, of course, Adam and Eve were called to uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Noah, we have already read the same thing right after the flood. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Okay? And so, I, uh, from the point of view of God, the calling on humanity is for this family to have an extended family and to dwell all over, uh, all over uh, the world. Okay? We know that we're all created, every human being is created in the image and likeness of God. Every human being is created in the, in the uh, image and uh, likeness uh, of God. And is, this is uh, reiterated in a, uh, in a number of places uh, in the Scriptures, uh, and, uh, you know, very important indeed uh, for us to remember. I, you know, in Ephesians chapter 3 in the New Covenant, there's a very interesting, uh, uh, a very interesting little prayer that Paul prays. Here, Paul, Mr. New Covenant, you know, uh, he's got, he, he, he did not fail his theology class, you know what I mean? He's got it down. But notice something he says here in verse 14 and 15. For this reason, uh, in Ephesians chapter 3, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, when you read a commentary on this, you read, oh, we're going to go into like 20 pages to prove that this is not some kind of universalism and, and uh, that, uh, you know, that people do need to embrace Yeshua in order to have a personal relationship with God. But it, does, it works for us right here so beautifully, doesn't it? From whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, you might come to me afterwards and say, but Howard, what about... What, what? Well, don't argue with me. I'm just reading what it says in the Bible. You may not like what it says in the Bible, but that's what it says right there. 
from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives it. Family. I think it's significant that he uses mishpacha. He, obviously, he's not using mishpacha, but he's speaking in Greek. I understand. From whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Because when you go back to the beginning, we see that the people on earth are a family, are related. So we can't just pass by uh, that little phrase, and uh, these three were the sons of Noah, from whom, uh, from, and from these the whole earth was uh, uh, populated. Okay. Now, we might say, well, I don't, you know, look at I don't even like my brother who I sit across from the dinner table with. You know, and we get into it all the time, right? So we might say, so what? That, the, that we're all related, you know, doesn't mean uh, that I uh, uh, have to uh, get along. Well, we're not done yet, okay? But the first thing we want to understand is that we all come out of the same egg. Every single one of us. All right. Then we read, Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. Now, that's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, in and of itself, if, if this was uh, maybe in our uh, Torah course, we might talk a little bit more about this, or an MSI class just on uh, uh, Genesis, maybe we would talk about this. So I'm just going to say a few words. He planted a vineyard. It's kind of interesting. He doesn't start with um, planting vegetables, you know, uh, but he plants a vineyard. Of course, Henry did a great job of explaining all of this at a recent um, uh, wine-tasting uh, fundraiser and the theology of wine, and, you know, very rich and, and, and all of that. But I'll just say that wine in the Bible is a staple of joy and happiness and fulfillment and represents blessing and, and, and richness in, in the Scriptures. And much like... At the beginning of the Bible, when God gives Adam and Eve blessings, the blessings of tilling the soil and the, the blessings of child rear, of, 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 of you know, giving birth and, and of serving and cultivating the garden, what we read is, and, and of relationship, what we read is that after they sin, God does not remove the blessings, but the blessings become twisted. God doesn't remove the blessing of bearing children, but it becomes difficult. It doesn't remove uh, the blessing of tilling the soil and cultivating the ground, but it becomes difficult. Sin makes it difficult. So it's very interesting that he plants a vineyard and then things fall apart. It's as if we're seeing uh, the, the beginning again. He planted that. If we just had that verse, the end, it would be, you know, roll the credits at the end of the movie. Oh, isn't that great? But we see it's not great. It's not great because what God said uh, earlier, that man, uh, a man's heart uh, is evil from the get-go, uh, and what, what is a blessing becomes difficult, becomes sinful, and so on. So we read, Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself in his tent. I mean, what a train wreck now, you know? We're going from, he, you know, a vineyard, this is great. You know, when we were in Israel a few years ago, and by the way, save up 2020. But anyway, 
I, you know, we planted a, a, I mean, uh, we, we were in Israel and we went to a, uh, we went to a vineyard, you know, we went to a winery and it was great. We learned all about wine from Israel and did, and tasted different. It was fabulous, you know, and uh, uh, of course, wine, there's many verses in the Bible that speaks of joy and, you know, and all, all of that. But sadly, he became drunk and uncovered himself in his tent. So he's drunk and he takes off his clothes. That's what the text tells us. Then we read, and he, now that, now becoming drunk, of course, obviously inebriated, uh, there you go, that's wrong, and uncovered himself in his tent. Now, so that's bad enough. So Noah, we see, that's Noah's situation. Now Ham, and we're reminded again, the father of Canaan, by the way, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. So the text says that what Ham did is he saw the nakedness of his father and, and, uh, and told his brothers. He doesn't cover up his father, but he goes out and he tells his, his brothers. Now, people wonder what does that mean? Because in, uh, as it says uh, in the next verse, but Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. Then Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. According to the text, what his younger son has done to him is shame him. According to the text, what has happened is that Ham shames his father because he does not revere his father. He does not honor his father because the whole point of the next verse is that Shem and Japheth don't look at him. It tells us that. You know, if you're familiar with a Hebrew text, ancient Hebrew text, you know that it is, it's not big on detail. It really is not big on detail. But here you have very specific details for a very important reason. They took a garment and laid upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. That's why I would say, may I suggest, that it's not incest, not some kind of incestuous thing. Because it's so they did not see their father's nakedness. Ham sees him naked and shames him. Now, is it conceivable that Ham did something else? Yes, it certainly is. Uh, uh, perhaps you, you could make the argument, well, the, uh, you know, the curse on, on Canaan is pretty severe for this. But remember that honor and shame in the ancient world was huge. People died over shame, were killed over shame. Very important. Another thing that you see here, you can argue whether it was incest or, uh, or he just saw him and it was shame. But the point is, and interestingly enough, we see in the family relationship, just like with Adam and Eve and just like with Cain and Abel, and as we will see in other relationships, that you know, great blessing comes with family, but great problems come with family can come with family. 
And family is the paradigm. Family is like the model of how we are called to live. And uh, uh, when you read the narratives, the stories that are interspersed within the laws, they're all, almost all, about families. And the sins that take place that we read about in the narratives are taking place oftentimes, way more often than not, in family relationships. And that has led many a scholar to conclude that the, the way the laws were to be understood is how they play out in family relationships uh, and, and then how families relate to others. So it's very interesting. So we see here there's a difference between Ham and his brothers, quite clearly, right? Quite clearly, uh, Ham shames his father. Uh, and, uh, and it has to do with some, it, it, it is in the realm of sexuality. He sees his father naked. Uh, and, uh, and somehow Noah recognizes this uh, when, uh, when he awakes after, you know, after he slept it off, right? And now he says in verse 25, 26, and 27, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. First of all, that, that, a servant of servants, that is like the lowest, okay? That it's not just, oh, he's going to serve his brothers. No, it is like the lowest, a servant of servants. You know, in Hebrew, it's, it's a repeated phrase, right? So it tells you it's a very emphatic, right? Uh, he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant, and may God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell uh, in the tents uh, of Shem. But, and let Canaan be his servant. Okay. So you see right away, the question here is, what's up with, with Canaan? Okay. Uh, again, the other sons are just referred to as Shem and Japheth. But here, it's not Ham who's cursed, it's Canaan. Evidently, kind of like Jacob at the end of the book of Genesis, who, who uh, prophesies over his sons of their destinies, uh, we see here, he says, cursed be Canaan. And by the way, this is the first thing Noah says. Noah doesn't speak till right now. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. Okay. Uh, now, you'll notice as the passage goes on, he says this, but it's really in the form of a prayer because he says in verse 26, and let Canaan be his servant. And then at the end of verse 27, and let Canaan be his servant. Like a refrain, you know? Uh, may God let Canaan be his servant. But, but this is the destiny that Noah sees for his son uh, Canaan. So first, let's, let's talk about that for a second. You know, Ham had a lot of sons. Did you know that? Ham, had, Ham did not just have a son named Canaan, okay? This is very important. So we're going to jump over to chapter 10 for a minute, okay? All right. All right, so in verse 6, And the sons of Ham were Cush, Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan, okay? And then he talks about the different sons of each one of them. And then in verse 15, he talks about Canaan, okay? 
And Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the uh, uh, Arvadite, and the Zemurite, and the Hamathite, and afterwards the families of Canaan were spread abroad. And then it tells us the territory of Canaan. It's very specific, the territory of Canaan. And the territory of Canaan, so that we would not misunderstand. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of in Romans chapter 11, when Paul says, so that you might not be wise in your own estimation, you know, that a hardening has come upon the Gentiles, right? It's like, wait a, wait a minute, I forgot that. Like, and, and the entire church, you know, for, has forgotten, you know, <laughs> uh, what Paul says, uh, and, uh, and I'm reminding you of something. Well, there's a real sad, uh, another part of church history uh, about uh, this particular passage. And here we, we, we learn the territory. And the territory of the Canaanite extended from Sidon as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza, as you go toward Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. Boom. Canaan is not all of Africa. Canaan is not even in Africa. Canaan is what we would call uh, the, the land of the Canaanites. Canaan, like from basically from Lebanon south to about somewhere south of the Dead Sea. That's Canaan. Okay? And it's telling us this on purpose. Why? Because may I suggest that the reason that we're reading this is because, as we'll learn in our Torah course, who is the intended audience, the original audience of this? I would suggest that it is the people, the second generation of people uh, in the wilderness and on the plains of Moab. And what they are learning here is why, why they are going to go into Canaan why they are going to destroy this people, why they are going to subjugate them, that just as in later history we read that Assyria is the rod of God's anger, so Israel, the Israelites, the sons of Jacob, are the rod of God's judgment on the Canaanites, on those people in that land. Sadly, this passage has been used in our own history of the subjugation of African-American people. That tells you why you need to take MSI classes. That tells you why you need to have a good understanding of the Word of God, and it doesn't matter necessarily just what the preacher's preaching up there. Or I'll say today what some Yahoo wrote on the Internet. Oh, it said Messianic! Hey, must be good! I would say there's really a, like a, a 75-25% chance that it's not anymore. That's been hijacked long ago, right? Uh, and, uh, and just because you read it doesn't make it true, all right? Very important here. So why is this here? Why do we read this? We're reading this uh, because this subjugation of Canaan uh, is... Uh, telling us in advance about the Canaanites and why it is that the Israelites go in. Because 
notice, you know, evidently Noah recognized that Canaan is not simply, or, or I'll just say, is not paying a price for what his ancestor Ham did, or what his father Ham did. It's not that he's innocent, okay, but he's paying the price. No. Noah, from the Lord, recognized that Ham's attitude, actions, were not going to die with Ham, but that Canaan would also have this kind of attitude. And it's interesting, if you turn to Leviticus chapter 18, we read, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt, where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. By the way, Mitzrayim, the son of, uh, you know, the son of Ham, Mitzrayim, is uh, Egypt. I, you shall not do it in the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in your statutes. I, now you'll notice what it's in verse 6. None of you shall approach any blood relative of his, of his to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, that is, the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You are not to uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father. It's going to go on and on and on and on about uncovering nakedness, a euphemism uh, for uh, sin, uh, sexual sin. Now, there's an argument in, uh, that, that people make in chapter 9 and that it, it doesn't say that Ham uncovered his father's nakedness. It says he saw his father's nakedness. Well, there is a verse that uses the word saw, uh, and uncover in the same verse. So, whatever the case may be, what we see here is, is what we're reading in Leviticus 18 is, don't be like the Canaanites. This is the kind of thing they're doing. Just like Ham. Just like Ham. And even worse, even more so. Okay? Uh, and so, uh, it is not a case that this, these ancient people today... We would say, so who are the Canaanites today, and how can we subjugate them? Wrong-o, okay? Uh, we don't read, we don't know Canaanites uh, uh, today, because we're in for a big surprise when we get to the, who the sons of Shem are, okay? All right. So this, I'm going to say, does not apply to the 21st century. This is a historical note of the conquest this does answer the question when people say, how is it that the, that the Israelites had the audacity to go in to subjugate the Canaanites? Here's your answer, okay? But it is not an answer having anything to do with the world today, all right? Okay. Now, he also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant, okay? So first, we see there's a relationship between God and Shem. It doesn't say, blessed be Shem. It says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Okay? Noah is blessing God. Okay? But we see that there is a relationship with God and Shem in some way. And then, again, the refrain, but, and let Canaan be his servant. Then, may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Now, there's a couple of different ways people go on this. 
May God enlarge Japheth, which is a play on the word Yapha, okay? Or Yafet, all right? Uh, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. So uh, this either means may God enlarge Japheth and let God dwell in the tents of Shem, or may Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. All right, so uh, you could read this one way as may God enlarge Japheth, and that's the end of Japheth. Then it's, and let God dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant, meaning Shem's servant. Okay, that's one way. It's okay. Uh, another way is, may God enlarge Japheth, and let Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be Japheth's servant. Okay, you can make the case. In either case, it's important to know, as you can read on your own, these genealogies, the sons of Japheth, and here's again where we, we just reduce these things ridiculously. Japheth doesn't mean Europe, and Ham doesn't mean Africa, okay? I'm, I'll bet you've, have you heard that? Yeah, that's not what it means. Here's, here, you ready? The, the sons of Japheth, according to the text, are people from what we would call, like in the New Covenant times, Asia Minor, Sea Peoples, Turkey, Greece, around the, 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 the Mediterranean area, okay? And what is fascinating about that is, that means that the Philistines are Japhethites. And there's two groups of people that dwelt in the land, that overtook the land of Canaan. Two groups. And isn't it interesting? Two groups that were enemies are the two groups that subjugate the Canaanites. The Israelites and the Philistines. Sons of Shem and sons of Japheth. That's fascinating, you know, as a historical, uh, as a historical uh, note. So whichever ever way you read it, we see that the, um, the, uh, the Canaanites are judged. Not only because of their biology, that's never the case. No, because they uh, follow in the footsteps of their father, Ham. And it is that place that, that borders from Lebanon, what we'd say today, Lebanon, south, that's Sidon, south, to just south of the Dead, uh, of the dead Sea. All right? Very, very important to understand that. Now, it says, And Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah are 950 years, and he died. Now, there's something else. I should stop here, but we have to wrap this up in a little bit of a different way. And that is, when you read the genealogies, okay, uh, and you come to... Uh, verse 5 in uh, chapter 10, the sons of Japheth. From these, the coast, from these, the coastlands of the nations, coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands. Everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. The word nations here is goyim, okay? And it means peoples. It, it functions, and this is the beginning of the word nations, where you, you first begin to read the word nations. It functions in the text as sort of like a larger set of family. Like peoples is, is families, but like the extended family. 
It's not understood to be races, like white people, black people, brown people, yellow people, uh, European people, African people, you know, that kind of thing. No, but extended family people groups, okay? You read the same thing uh, here about Ham in verse 20. These are the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, and their nations. Again, the paradigm is families and extended families. Uh, and then you read uh, in verse 31, these are the sons of Shem, according to their families, languages, lands, according to their peoples, nations. Now, to get a real reality check, when you read the sons of Shem, we don't have time today to go over all the sons of Shem. Next week, we'll talk a little bit more about it. All the sons of Shem are all the people that live in the Middle East. That's who the sons of The sons of Shem are the people from Babylon, the people in between, the Arabian people, uh, the, what we would call today in the 21st, the Arab people, okay, are sons of Shem. They're not Hamites, okay? Uh, they're not Canaanites, all right? You might have read something like that on the internet, okay? Uh, you know, from crazy.news, uh, you know, uh, right? Uh, so, sorry, uh, you know, as a friend of mine likes to say, you know, it might sound good, but I can't find it in the Bible, you know? Uh, very important uh, for us to get. Now, the last thing I'll say is this, and we will break this down in weeks to come, or just break down, perhaps, I don't know. But in the middle of this genealogy, we have a few verses that we call the Tower of Babel passage, and all I want to say about it is this. God, at the end of it, God scatters the people abroad over the face of the whole earth, okay? Very important. He confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. That gives us reasons why we know that they spoke different languages. There's another school of thought that says there was a lingua franca. There was, there was a lot of languages, but there was a language that everybody spoke. And then God scattered them so that there was no longer a lingua franca, no longer a language that everyone spoke. But the point is that he scatters them all over the world. And remember, going back to the Garden of Eden and going back to Noah, what did God say? He said, be fruitful and multiply and have everybody live in your neighborhood? No. He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth. And so what God is doing, he is forcing them to do what he called them to do, and that is fill the earth. So that means that we who are all related to each other through the three sons of Noah— God purposefully has living all over the world, has purposefully having many different languages, and we look different, and we have different cultures, uh, and all of that, and that's what makes for the family of humanity, you see? Uh, and that is why Paul says in Galatians and in Romans, right, that there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, man or woman, right? It's because in the community of believers, we are to demonstrate that family. That's why he even uses the language of brothers and sisters, the family paradigm. And then, of course, in the book of Revelation, 
which I dare not even approach. No, just joking. In the book of Revelation, in the fifth chapter and elsewhere, what do we read? Who are the believers? Who are, who's worshiping? People from every tribe, every language, every nation, every people group. We don't lose that identity when we become believers. When we receive Yeshua, we don't become Jews. We don't become white people. We don't become black people. We don't become uh, patriotic Americans. We don't become Chileans or Canadians or Russians or uh, whatever you want to be. No, we are who we are. You see, very important. And we of all people need to recognize that so that when we see evil, when we see like white supremacists and when we see Nazis, we say evil. That is wrong. That is sin. And it is the sin of Cain and Abel. It is the sin, uh, you know, of Ishmael and, and Isaac and of Jacob and, and of Esau. Uh, the sins uh, uh, that we see that have separated peoples. And that is why at the end, the wolf lays down with the lamb. And that is why nations come together. The, the Assyrians and the Egyptians uh, come together and worship uh, with the Jews in Eretz Israel. Uh, in the ancient world, enemies lay down their spears, right? And uh, they become farming utensils, right? And uh, perhaps maybe in that day, we'll come back to that vineyard and we'll all have a nice uh, drink of wine together uh, and rejoice under a fig tree uh, and, uh, and recognize that we are one family of humanity. And that's what happens when we embrace the Messiah. God supernaturally heals those wounds. God supernaturally does away with the enmity, with hatreds. The mother of all reconciliations is Jew and Gentile. And Gentile is everybody, except the Jews. We can't figure out who we are, right? But the Gentiles is everybody else. Right? And so there is uh, this putting away of enmity. And that is why in the body of Messiah, we cannot have enmity against each other. And I would suggest by extension to the outside world. We need to demonstrate that. And that's what we learn from the sons of Noah. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that when we go all the way back, that we can understand where we come from. And Lord, it's important for us to know where we come from so that we can know who we are and where we're going. Lord God, I just pray, Lord, uh, that uh, for grace and mercy, Lord, even today, even on this day in Boston and in California and elsewhere, Lord, that you would show grace and mercy, Lord, and that there would be uh, no trauma, Lord. But God, we do pray that you would squelch voices of hate, and of suppression, and of bigotry, Lord. God, we, we pray uh, that uh, there would be no voices of Nazis, Lord, in our world. Lord, haven't we had enough of that, Lord God? But it reminds us, Lord, that sin still reigns in this world, and that Satan, the enemy, is indeed the God of this world. But thank you, Lord, that you have transferred us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved Son, and that our King is Yeshua, 
He is our leader, Lord. And so, God, may, uh, may we follow our leader, Lord, and may we call out the evil, speak against it, and demonstrate the opposite to squelch it. But, Lord, we know that the really the only answer is Yeshua. Lord, we pray, God, that Yeshua would permeate these people, that they would repent and understand who they are as human beings and their true, real calling as human beings. Lord, so many people have just been sucked into hate given certain situations in their lives or what they've been taught. Lord, we pray, God, that uh, you would undo it. And Lord, may we be a light. Lord, as someone, as someone or more than one person has said this past week, they may have torches, but we have the light. Oh, Lord, may that light not be hidden under a bushel, but may that light shine, Lord. And may you give us the courage to shine the light of Yeshua into this darkness. We pray in Yeshua's name.